Well, good afternoon, uh, Rua Church. We will be uh, once again in Luke's Gospel in chapter 12. I invite you to turn there in your copy of God's Word. And uh, once you are there in Luke chapter 12, verse 13... I would invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns, and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. So God said to him, Fool, this night... Your soul is required of you, and the things which you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body and what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add even a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which lives in a field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And do not seek what you, can, what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Well, I am reminded uh, tonight as we approach uh, these verses uh, in Luke's gospel uh, that sometimes... Uh, Sometimes there is a little bit of uh, cultural or environmental baggage that comes onto the text of Scripture. I can't tell you growing up in in the church how often I've heard uh, these verses preached uh, or even how much I've heard these verses referenced. I think that even as I was reading that text, uh, if you have uh, grown up in the church or been around church at all, uh, many of those lines which I read are, are familiar to you. Uh, you might uh, recognize the idea of not uh, of laying up for yourself treasure in heaven where moth can't get to it and, and rust won't destroy it. Um, these ideas of, of wealth and, and poverty and richness and, and generosity, uh, these are things that are some of the most uh, used and, and often misused 
teachings of Jesus. And I think the, the way in which we ought to understand Jesus is on his own terms, uh, which is why we're going to read that full chunk and, and with the full thrust of Jesus' argument, try to make sense of what he's saying to his disciples. Uh, there uh, is, is something uh, to this text, uh, which often is, is misconstrued, uh, and that is uh, this idea that Jesus would have told his disciples to just not worry, uh, and this is kind of a foundational principle of what it means to follow after Jesus. You just shouldn't worry about things. Uh, and that could be true, or it could be wrong, depending on where your source of confidence lies. Uh, let me give you an example uh, of what I mean. Um, you might be familiar with the Disney movie, The Lion King, in which you encounter two characters, uh, Timon and Pumbaa, who have this amazing song, an amazing uh, track, uh, where they tell the protagonist Simba, uh, Hakuna Matata. It means no worries. Uh, don't worry about today, don't worry about tomorrow, no worries for the rest of your life. And as a children's movie, you don't critically look at that text and realize how off the advice that Timon and Pumbaa give to Simba is. Simba has just watched his father be killed at the hands of his uncle. His whole world is imploding around him. He escapes to the wilderness, and he bumps into these two people who say, yeah, just don't worry about that. Solution. And basically, Simba makes it through this childhood trauma with seemingly no ill effects. Now, that works in a Disney movie, but that's often how we take Jesus' words and we, we plant his, his teaching on the crux of just feel good about life, don't worry about things that are going on around you, and you'll, you'll live a, a better life, a more wholesome kind of life. Well, that's nothing short of bad advice. It's feel-good advice, but it's, it's just bad advice. Another uh, children's movie, this one, uh, I could not get out of my head, so I finally had to Google the, the lyrics to what song it went to. Um, but it's, it's the movie Shark Tale, where you discover, uh, you discover two, two characters, Ernie and Bernie, the jellyfish, and they are singing a song while they're busy interrogating with brutal force Will Smith's character, and they're singing the song, Don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right, while they're electrocuting Will Smith's character. <laughs> now that song doesn't quite match the situation, right? And that's bad advice from Ernie and Bernie because Will Smith should be very concerned because he's about to be executed. He's about to have his life demanded of him. So what is, the, what is, what is Jesus actually saying here? If he's not just telling us to feel good about our lives and to, to just go through the world with no concerns, what's he telling us? He's telling us something that's actually good news, which is you shouldn't worry, not because not worrying is a, a good way to live your life. He's telling us you shouldn't worry because God Almighty is an objective reality which you can count on. Don't worry because you have a Father in heaven who loves you and who cares for you and who is sovereignly over the world in such a way that nothing happens in this world apart from his good will. This is Jesus' thrust. And what prompts Jesus to, to go on this whole teaching about not worrying? Well, it's a question from someone who's certainly concerned about their own future. Look in verse 13 where you find the man from the crowd who yells to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
And you can imagine if you're at a desperate kind of situation where you're, you have resulted to going to a public situation where Jesus isn't going to address your personal situation, and in the middle of him teaching, you're going to scream out from the crowd and tell him to try to get uh, call balls and strikes on your situation. You can, you can imagine you're, you, you're kind of in a desperate situation if this is what you've resorted to. This person is clearly worried about something, namely their security in this world, their future, because whatever inheritance they had from their father, uh, their brother has, has decided not to share it with them. And now this is going to cause a great deal of stress and a great deal of worry for this individual. And notice what Jesus says. Even He's not going to say this is right or wrong or, or anything like that. He goes straight to uh, the heart of the matter, which is addressing this man's concern at his heart level. And he says to him in verse 14, man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now imagine telling someone who might have a legitimate claim about the inheritance that may or may not be owed to them, and telling them, hey, don't worry, guard your heart against covetousness, and possessions aren't all they're cut out to be. Imagine that advice coming from Jesus. It kind of sounds like, don't worry, in a situation that doesn't quite fit a no-worry kind of vibe. Don't worry because possessions aren't all that important. And you might call back, well, but possessions might not be everything, but they certainly are something. They're something that helps me to live in this world, to provide for my family, to put food on the table, to not be hungry. Possessions aren't nothing. And if you abuse the teaching of Jesus, you, you kind of land in this position where you say, well, possessions don't even really matter at all. But we're reminded of the fact that as Christians, we are not we're not Gnostics. We don't just believe in some kind of spiritual reality where we ascend away from this world, away from the reality around us, and we are saved out of this world. And that, that's sometimes what we, what we think Jesus is teaching here. Don't worry about your life, your possessions, the things in front of you. Don't worry about that kind of stuff. Now, to understand what Jesus is saying, we have to follow his logic very tightly. Because Jesus is going to teach us about what covetousness is, its two forms, and then he's going to tell us essentially a concluding thrust, a worldview building, if you will, that lands us with, with no ability to say anything else other than, I don't need to worry about tomorrow. So let's look at the argument of Jesus. I'm going to do a quick uh, overview of his argument, and then we'll, we'll kind of break down the component parts. So his thesis statement uh, is found there in verse 14, where he tells them, uh, Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. So he, he tells them, don't covet. Be on guard against all manner of covetousness. And then subpoint, right? Why would you guard against covetousness? Well, because possessions aren't everything, okay? So his, his thesis is guard your heart against covetousness. And then he's going to tell us about two different kinds of covetousness. The first one is found in verse 16 and 17. A man who is rich, who has an abundance of possessions... And as we see in the conclusion of that parable, who overvalues his safety, security, and, and place in this world as a result of having so many possessions. He, he's coveted his possessions. He's found his value, his identity, and his security in what he can see in front of him. The abundant harvest, the, the wealth that it has brought him, that's all he can see. This is one kind of covetousness, someone who is only rich towards themselves. And then there's a second kind of covetousness, which you find in verse 22, 
which is someone who is anxious about their life and the things which they do not have. We often think about greed as, as a rich person problem. It's something that people who have money have a problem with because they hold money that they shouldn't hold. But greed is a, a human problem, and coveting is certainly something you can sin in if you have a lot to covet and hold on to, and if you don't have a lot, so you start looking around thinking, that will satisfy me. The one who covets, in verse 22, is one who is anxious about their life and what they will eat and their body and what they will put on because they think if they had what the rich person had, they would have all that they needed. It's a kind of covetousness because it doesn't find security and place in this world in God's reality. They don't live in light of eternity. They live in light of their temporary moment. Well, that's no different than the man who's rich and a fool, who looks only at this world and its possessions and says, I must be wealthy. And so too is the one who looks at this world and all they have and says, I must be anxious from day to day for I have nothing. Two kinds of covetousness. Well, the problem with the first kind of covetousness is, is one that uh, it, it's, not, it's not stewardship. Uh, often we think about rich, riches and wealth, and we think it must be sinful to be rich because every rich person we encounter in the Gospels uh, is a person who uh, is not to be followed. But wealth is not something that Jesus teaches is sinful or wrong or wicked, but it's a heart posture that may or may not often be associated with someone who is rich and wealthy. So if you look at the rich fool, where does the rich fool go wrong? Where does he misstep? Where does he step away from faithful stewardship and into sin? Well, the rich fool sins not in verse uh, 17 or in verse 16. So if you look at verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Okay? And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? These are two very logical, very reasonable things. If you have yielded a huge crop and you have land and you're stewarding your resources, those are both rational and logical and good questions to ask. He hasn't sinned. Verse 18, and he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and all my goods. Ask yourself, has he sinned yet? I don't think so because if that was the case, then Joseph would have been in great sin in Egypt when he built storehouses for Pharaoh's abundant harvest. And yet that is an example of how good stewardship looks when he saves his family and indeed all the Near Eastern community from his wise stewardship of resources. So where does the rich man go wrong? He goes wrong in the very next verse, verse 19, when he says these words. Here's his motivation, his heart posture for why he does all that he's done. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Eat, relax, drink, and be merry. Here's sin. Because the rich man has assumed a few errant things. Number one, that his riches, his blessing, his abundant harvest was for himself and for himself alone. This rich man has not considered any of his other neighbors who might not have had an abundant harvest. He hasn't considered any of his community around him. He hasn't considered anyone else. He's only considered himself, and he said, well, for me, this is good. I have many years of income to, to, uh, to my access only. And if you're one person and you have all these resources just for yourself, the conclusion is very fitting. 
relax, eat, drink, and be merry, right? You don't have to work anymore because you have everything for yourself stored up. You don't have any other work to do. And that is the heart posture of someone who's looked at all of their earthly resources and concluded, I have enough for me, myself, and I, and that's it. I'm not going to keep working, keep being productive, keep being fruitful, and ask the question, where can I be generous? I'm not going to look at the needs of my neighbors around me and ask, how can I be generous if I've yielded harvest here? How can I invest this and be a good steward so I can yield increasingly more harvest? He simply said, I'm going to sit back and relax and enjoy the ride from this moment forward. Not concerned for anyone around me, just concerned for the resources I have amassed for myself. And it is when he says these words that we find God saying to him in verse 20, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And those things which you have now prepared and said to yourself, I have security in them, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up for himself treasure on earth and is not rich towards God. You see, the problem is not having treasure on earth. The problem is having treasure on earth and thinking it's my treasure alone and concluding I don't have to be rich towards God. I don't have to be rich towards neighbor. I don't have to be rich towards anyone else because God has blessed me. Well, actually, you don't have God in this picture. So you think I have blessed myself with my harvest, and so it's mine to keep. We've, we, we've found Jesus teaching about the Good Samaritan. You might remember that story that he tells. And remember, the Good Samaritan is lauded for the fact that he has resources and he uses them for the benefit of another. Imagine the Good Samaritan told differently through the eyes of this rich fool, where he walks by on the road and he concludes, well, it's not my problem, not my person. I have much wealth for myself, and I'm not going to work for any more. Why would I spend wealth on this person? I'm going to go on my way because I have plenty for myself. I can eat, relax, drink, and be merry. God has not called wealthy people to live in this world in that kind of way because their wealth is not theirs to begin with. It's been given of God for the purpose of blessing those around them. We know this, that, that Jesus and, and God don't have a problem with wealth because Job, an Old Testament saint, is extremely wealthy. So wealthy it would make your head spin in terms of how much he has in the ancient Near Eastern world. He has children in abundant number. He has crops and cattle in abundant number. And that doesn't cause him to sin because he's so generous with it. He's, he's used his wealth to benefit almost everyone around him, his children, those who are under his care. That's a, a Christian and a biblical view of, of wealth. We find Zacchaeus, who doesn't conclude in Luke chapter 19 that in order to be a Christian, I must become poor. He, he concludes, in order to follow Jesus, I must give back the wealth which I have unrighteously amassed for myself, and he uses that wealth, what he has unrighteously amassed for himself, to make things right. But it doesn't tell us he sells everything he has and then is now poor from this moment forward. He actually uses his wealth for the benefit of the mission of Jesus, to make things right, to testify to the goodness of Jesus. We find the, the wealthy women in, in Luke chapter 8 who are told to be benefactors of Jesus and his disciples, so they essentially spur on Jesus so he doesn't have to labor for his own food. They actually pay so that he can be a traveling rabbi. And even more so than all this, we have uh, many examples, uh, uh, many other examples, even in the Old Testament, of Israel being blessed by God in her wealth and her abundance so that she might be a blessing to the nations around her. So the problem with the rich fool is not that he has many goods or that he's been blessed with an abundant harvest. His problem is that he concludes, this is mine and mine alone. 
It's for nobody else. And God didn't bless me with this so I can turn around and give it to my neighbor or to invest it in my community or to help anyone else. God has blessed me with this so that I can stop working and I can have mine for the rest of my life. That's one kind of covetousness. Perhaps this is the kind of covetousness which you struggle with. In the West, this is literally the American dream to make enough money and enough success in your career so that you can stop working, so you can retire, so that you can live off what you've made for yourself. And sometimes, so you're not even worried about other people around you or sometimes not even children because uh, in the American dream, it's, it's dropping off to have children to leave an inheritance for. The, the conclusion is essentially work so that you can retire and then once you can retire, you spend everything you have so that you time it just perfectly so that the day you die, there's really not much left because you've spent it all perfectly on yourself. What God says about wealth is, is very different. But this is one kind of covetousness which we are tempted towards, to work only for ourselves, to retire, to stop working, and then to live off of the wealth with which, which we have amassed for ourselves. In Scripture, there is a, a concept of, of retirement, uh, let's say sitting under your own vine and fig tree and, and yielding the fruit of your own labor, but it never comes at the, at the cost of being no longer generous towards anyone around you. There's nothing wrong with being a good steward. In fact, we're going to see many parables in Luke where Jesus tells uh, his, his disciples to be good stewards of the resources which they have. The problem comes where you think those resources are yours only. That's one kind of covetousness. The other one we see in verse 22. And this kind of covetousness we might call anxiousness because our Lord calls it that. And he says in verse 22, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life what you will eat, or about your body and what you will put on. For your life is more than food, your body is more than clothing. Pretty straightforward argument. And here he says, what is the antidote to your anxiousness? Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap, and they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And... Which of you, by being anxious, can add even a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So if you're anxious, Jesus has said this is a form of covetousness. You're guarding your heart against anxiousness because you're supposed to guard your heart against covetousness. And the, and the solution is not to say, I simply won't be anxious or I'll be content with what I have. And I'm just going to still focus on these resources in front of me. That's a very... Uh, self-helpy kind of way to look at this. What Jesus says is, consider the providence of God as seen in the ravens. Because when you look at the ravens, you look at creation, you look at how these birds live their lives, you conclude something, which is the ravens, uh, they don't invest in stocks, they don't start economies, they don't have Roth IRAs or 401ks, they don't have houses and land and, and and assets to themselves. They don't even have clothing. They just have the feathers that they were created with. They don't sow or reap. They don't do what this man did where they have barns and storehouses where they could be tempted to put their things. So how does the raven get on year after year after year? Well, God, who is over all creation, provides rainfall and fruit and yield so that the raven would have things to eat all year long. Consider God's providence as through the ravens. The ravens don't worry about any of what humans worry about, and yet they live 
year after year after year. What a testimony to God's providence. The raven can't think into 10 years from now, and yet God has insisted in his providence he will keep them alive. Glory to God. And even if the ravens and you could change anything about the future by worrying, you know that you can't because verse 25, which of you by being anxious can, eat, eat, can add even a single hour to his span of life? You can't buy your way into longer life. Uh, try as you might, you cannot, if you have terminal cancer, pay the doctor more money to get rid of it if there's no treatment that exists. You can't worry yourself into another day. In fact, worrying uh, consistently actually shortens your lifespan, as we find in modern medicine. Worry and stress and anxiety, they all shorten your lifespan, not add to it. So Jesus is making a strong point here, an irrefutable point. You cannot add to your life by worrying. So then, if you can't do that, verse 26, why, why are you anxious about all the rest of the things? Because you can't even, if you just worried about how long you lived, you couldn't even change that. So why worry about anything else? Example number two of God's providence, consider the lilies, verse 27, and how they grow. Why does he go to the, first to the ravens, then the lilies? The ravens have brains, and they don't plan into the future, but they have brains. They can think for themselves. Well, what about flowers? They can't think for themselves, right? Here we found something that it literally has no care in the world. How could it live into the future? Consider the lilies and how they grow. They don't, eat, they don't toil or spin. And yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Consider God's providence down to the grass that he keeps alive year after year after year, which doesn't even make it a, a full calendar year. It won't even make it through the season that it's alive in because it'll be here today, cut down and thrown into an oven tomorrow. Humans live decades upon decades of their life. So how much more valuable are humans than lilies, even if you were just going time span of life? Not even to mention the image of God, which is on humans. If God's providence can make sure that lilies exist and grass makes it day after day, couldn't his providence extend to his highest creation and take care of them? What's the conclusion then? Okay, if you, if you can't do that, if that's an example of little faith, verse 29, then what? Then don't seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Now, surely here we have struck Jesus detaching himself from reality and saying, don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right, with no real care for the needs of people on the ground. Surely we found an instance where he's, he's done that. Because he says, don't even worry about what you're going to eat. Seek the kingdom of God. And, you know, the food will magically appear on the table. Kind of sounds like he's saying something like that. It's not, that's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is doing here is, is giving us an example of uh, what we might call aligning our priorities appropriately. If someone is only concerned for uh, the things that they are going to eat and what they are going to drink, they become very animalistic. Jesus is the great teacher of Israel. He's a great rabbi. And here he says, look at the nations of the world. Look at Babylon. Look at Persia. Look at Rome. 
You want to know what drives them to be the way that they are, what drives their morality to be the way that it is? It's that they only care for their immediate future, getting what's theirs, and that's it. That's why they are gruesome to kill their enemies. That's why they think stealing is okay, as long as you don't get caught. Because they, they have no moral code except live into tomorrow. Well, that's very, uh, that's very Darwinian. That's very evolutionary. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that I can make it to tomorrow myself. But humans aren't, aren't like this. We shouldn't be. So Jesus is, is telling us to get our priorities straight. What happens in verse 31 if you were to seek his kingdom and then these things will be added to you? What does that mean? Well, Jesus teaches us in several instances, not least of which is the Sermon on the Mount, what does it look like to live in his kingdom? And he gives us a moral framework to live in the world. The whole book of Proverbs is wisdom from Jesus about how you live in the world. Seek his wisdom, seek his kingdom. What happens if you live in the world in the way Proverbs says to, or the way the Sermon on the Mount says to? You're actually going to find that rather than having tribalistic divisions amongst yourselves, you're going to live in a world that's going to begin to flourish. Because God made the world, and he made it for his people to live in it as he said to. And so if you live in the world seeking his kingdom and its principles of stewardship and wealth and wisdom and application of work, what's going to happen? Well, the rest of things like what you eat, what you drink, how you make your livelihood, those things will kind of just be tacked on as you go. If you think about, uh, for example, the wisdom in Proverbs, which says basically don't be lazy, look at the ant and watch how it works and work in accordance with how the ant works, working consistently day after day. That would be a kind of seeking the kingdom. You seek God's wisdom, how you live in his kingdom, and you're going to live in this world like that. Well, you won't be worried about day-to-day -day food because you'll actually begin to amass for yourself food in keeping with his wisdom, like, oh, I can take care of my family not just for tomorrow, but for the rest of this week, for the rest of this month, and I can begin to steward wisely. He's giving uh, his people a priority check. Because if you look at just the resources in front of you in a desperate situation and a desperate time, you begin to compromise all manner of morality to make things work so that you can put food on the table or so you can make it to tomorrow. And Jesus is saying his principles, his morals, his way of working in the world first, and all the rest of these things will be added to you. Now, what guarantee do you have that it'll work out that way? Isn't it possible that someone can take advantage of you if you are living in this world how Jesus says to? Absolutely, it's possible. So what hope do you have? Well, Jesus actually gives us this as a promise. If you seek his kingdom, you will have all these things added to you. Well, what does that mean? It does not guarantee prosperity for everyone in this life, that we will somehow become the richest people on earth if we just live in accordance with his kingdom. Certainly, Proverbs and, and other texts tell us about how we live in the world is a wise way to live, but it doesn't guarantee infinite wealth or infinite uh, finances. It doesn't guarantee that we will have a perfect life which is free of any kind of disease. It doesn't guarantee any of that. What seeking his kingdom, though, does guarantee is that we are going to be seeking the face of God who just so happens to be looking out for the interest of his people. Uh, a, similar, uh, a similar example of this don't worry and, and seek God's kingdom, and, and all the rest of it will be taken care of. We find this in the Old Testament. If you, if you want to turn there, it's in, it's in Joshua chapter 1, where you find 
the people of God on the precipice of the promised land about to go in. And we find uh, essentially uh, God telling Joshua, don't worry about fighting people. Don't worry about all the hard work which is in front of you. Here's what you should worry about. I am with you, so therefore, be obedient to what I've said. And essentially, I'll take care of the rest. You find this uh, in a couple of places in Joshua chapter 1, but uh, the most, most on-the-nose text that is often read devoid of the rest of its context is Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, where you find God saying, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua, don't, don't be scared, don't be frightened, don't be worried, because God is right there alongside you, walking it out with you. You might find Jesus saying to his disciples, don't be dismayed, don't worry about the future, about any of these things, because your heavenly Father is carefully attending to you, in the same way that he cares for the ravens and for the lilies and for the grass. He's watching out for you. And, and so you find in Scripture this testimony that God tells his people not to worry, to be strong, to be courageous, to face things head on, to live in this world without, without fear, because there is the objective reality of a good God in heaven who loves them and who cares for them. Now this takes us to essentially the, the final kind of exhortation or let's say pastoral plea from Christ, where he says in verse 32, Fear not, little flock. For it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, right? God, in his good will, his good desire, his good gifts, wants to actually give you the kingdom. Therefore, verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Final conclusion of, of Jesus' plea is, don't worry, little flock, that's another way of saying disciples or church or my people. Don't worry, because it is your heavenly Father's good pleasure to give you the very thing in which he's commanding you to seek, his kingdom. Think about the disciples' prayer where Jesus says, pray, your will be done, your kingdom come, right? He's, he actually wants to give it to them as a promise. So if that's true, verse 33, you can sell your possessions, He's not saying liquidate all your assets, including the clothes on your back, cash it all in to some, some person, and then live poor the rest of your life. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, let's say you stumble across someone in need. You've been given wealth, you've been given possessions, and you stumble across someone who needs it. Get rid of it. Give it to the person who needs it. Sell your possessions in the way that the Good Samaritan gives his possessions to the person in deed. Why? Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. So if you take your physical wealth and you invest it into someone who needs it, you're not going to uh, covet it and hold on to it in the way the rich fool does. Well, you're actually storing up for yourself, let's say, uh, treasure in heaven, as the text says here, money bags that don't grow old. You're, you're building up for yourself treasure that cannot be assaulted by this world. The 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 core text on this is, is in 1 Corinthians, where Paul tells uh, the church, uh, essentially, live your life in such a way that how you live actually survives the, the purging by fire. Build your house with, with, with good things. Live your world in such a way where you can actually take treasure into heaven. How do you take treasure into heaven? 
but you live in this world like heaven is a reality, and all of that stuff actually somehow, some way, gets, gets added up. Now, he doesn't tell us what is a one-for-one one, or, you know, one dollar invested on earth is such and such treasure in heaven. That's not the point. The point is, living in earth actually has tangible benefits for eternity. We are eternally minded, and that actually alters how we live in this world. And the conclusion is, right, verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Now, this conclusion actually traces back through the passage to essentially answer his basic thesis. So if you look again at his thesis in verse uh, 15, he says, take care and be on guard against covetousness. Okay, how do you be on guard against covetousness? Verse 34, pay attention to where your treasure is. You guard your heart from covetousness by putting your treasure in the right spot. The problem with the rich fool, and I would call him the anxious fool, is that both of them has misplaced their treasure. They both put their treasure on earth and concluded whatever I have or don't have is the sum total of my assets. And Jesus says, well, actually, you've forgotten to keep eternity in mind. You've forgotten to keep heaven in mind. And if you factored heaven in, you would realize that this earth is actually not all that much in terms of the sum total of your assets. There's a, a famous uh, old, old experiment done in like the 1970s in Stanford. Uh, there's a bunch of iterations of this as well, and you, you might know it, where they take a marshmallow and sit down with a three to five-year-old. And they tell them, you can have this marshmallow now, or I'm going to leave and I'll be back in 15 minutes. And when I come back, I can give you another marshmallow, two marshmallows for your wait time. It's all about delayed gratification, right? And that might sound like good earthly wisdom, right? And obviously, as the experiment plays out, they conclude something like it, the, the children who are able to wait for the second marshmallow, these are people who are going to be successful in the world because they know how to delay gratification. Well, it doesn't quite work out like that on the ground in reality. But it is an interesting idea that delaying gratification, let's say, has something to do with, let's say, a more realistic look at the world. It's objectively smarter to wait 15 minutes and get two marshmallows for your trouble. It would be, let's say, a bad thing to just eat one marshmallow and, and be done with it. Well, that sounds just like earthly wisdom until you realize that the earthly wisdom variation of that kind of delayed gratification still has a relatively short time period in mind, namely 80 or 90 years. If you delay your pleasure, let's say, in your early teens and 20s and you start let's say, reaping benefits in your 30s and 40s and 50s or whatever, you'll live in this world in such a way where you'll, you know, kind of reap all the benefits of it, right? You don't want to be someone who only indulges pleasure all the time. You want to be able to delay gratification. Well, the Christian says, yes, that's great wisdom, actually, but eternity is a reality, and sin is a problem, and heaven is a real place where people can go and be one with God in the new heavens and new earth and eternity in the future. So why don't we take this delayed gratification timeline and say, why don't we actually extend it to the reality of the cosmos instead of the reality of only my life? And then how would you live in the world? Well, you'd live wisely. You would live like someone who seeks the treasure of eternity rather than the treasure of 60, 70, 80 years. In that way, Jesus is telling his disciples to be more wise than the world. Take the world's principles and apply them like a sane person who knows that God exists and that eternity is real. Well, then, what are, the, the, what are the problems in eternity? The number one problem is, where do you go in eternity? Which is, 
if eternity is real, does everyone go to the same place, right? These are, let's say, the cosmic questions that get asked. And in the Christian worldview, we know no, because God is holy, and only those who are holy can dwell with him. So what would be a wise way to live in this life? It would be to solve the problem of our unholiness before God. That would be the wisest way to conduct yourself in this life so that you could have treasure in eternity. You could actually make it there. And you wouldn't be punished for your unholiness before God. So how do you do that? Well, Scripture doesn't just give us a bunch of guesses as how could we be so holy before God. As many would conclude, you know, if I live my best life here on earth, then God will be pleased with me. He'll let me into heaven. Well, that is a low view of God, which basically says God says be holy, but he doesn't tell us how to be holy. And so we just have to guess and hope we're right. The Bible actually says God tells us to be holy. He actually tells us exactly how we are to be holy. He gives us his perfect law. But we all fall short of that perfect law. And thus, we're back to the first problem, which is not only do we now know that heaven and eternity are realities, but we also know that it's a reality not for us because we are unholy people who fall short of his standard. That means we don't actually have a treasure in heaven because we won't even make it into heaven to get access to the treasure. So then, then where does that leave us? Well, that leaves us with the need for a savior, which scripture also tells us God provides to meet all of his own holy code and then who offers his life as a ransom for all who would believe in him. And he then accesses heaven for us. And so if you were following with this, you might say, well, then the wisest way, the most shrewd way, the most intellectually coherent way to live in this world would be to live seeking the kingdom of heaven, namely the savior of the world, Jesus Christ, and acknowledging that because of what he's done and how he has made heaven a reality, we might live in this world, let's say, in light of that. That would be the wisest way to live in this world. That would be a perfect way to inoculate yourself to covetousness. You wouldn't struggle with that because you would actually have security in Christ, in him. Well, then you wouldn't struggle so much with your earthly possessions because you would recognize, well, if God has been rich towards me by showing me gracious uh, goodness in Jesus, well, then I can turn around and, and love my neighbor in a way that shows gracious goodness to them because I, I've been shown it, now I can turn around and, and show it. I wouldn't be anxious about today or tomorrow or the food on the table because I actually have a heavenly father who looks out for me and I have proof that he looks out for me, namely that he sent his son for me. And so I'm going to live in this world in a way that trusts in the providence of God. Now, there's certain uh, things we might have to guard ourselves against in, in those conclusions that we might draw. Number one, that being anxious in the Christian frame of anxiousness or not being anxious is simply a mental state of mind. That we just say to ourselves, well, don't worry. Or we might say, I'm going to offer it up to God in prayer. And by doing those two things, I'm, I'm done with anxiousness. The Christian view of anxiousness goes deeper than that. And it says that we aren't anxious because God is a reality, because God cares for us, and so, we live in this world free of anxiousness, not just as a mental, let's say, bubble that guards us against that worry, but because that's actually more tethered to reality than not. <laughs> anxiousness is the fake view of reality which sees no heavenly father, nothing looking out for you, so you have to look out for you. And God says, I'm already looking out for you, so you don't have to be anxious. You can just trust in my providence and live in this world, obeying my law, following after me, obeying my kingdom, 
and then I'll take care of the rest of it. And we also have to guard ourselves against the reality that's, that inserts what God taking care of the rest of it looks like. Because if you were to ask Stephen in Acts chapter 7, did God add all the things of the kingdom to you in your life when you faithfully bore witness about him? Stephen would say, yes, absolutely he did. But from an earthly perspective, that looks like Stephen being brutally killed by the Pharisees through stoning. But we actually get a glimpse into the heavenly reality of that situation where Christ is standing up ready to receive Stephen into the kingdom to say, well done, good and faithful servant. So we, we have to be careful to guard our hearts from assuming what God means when he says all these things will be added to you. It looks different for different people. For Abraham, it meant much wealth on earth that he was supposed to invest into the future generations. For Paul, it meant an elongated life where he somehow survives multiple beatings so he can continue to preach the gospel. But Paul's not really worried about what he's going to eat. He's just worried about getting to the gospel. And somehow, some way, God keeps him alive, sustains him, makes sure that he finds his way out of prison and to sustenance. Those things are all kind of taken care of for him. But what about the church? The church, let's say, living in light of their reality, doesn't insert what God's providence has to look like for them on the ground or else they're going to disbelieve in God. They just conclude, we know God is real, his word says so, and we're going to seek after him in prayer and supplication and living in this world as though he is real, and we will trust all the rest of it to him. That's, that's seeking his kingdom and letting the rest of it kind of be taken care of. So we realize then that the Christian view of anxiousness, of worry, is not a Hakuna Matata message in the way Timon and Pumbaa say it, like, don't worry about a thing uh, because just don't worry. <laughs> That's as far as their logic goes, and it's nothing more than wishful thinking. Because if you meet someone who's actually experienced pain and suffering in this world, and you go to them and you tell them, well, just don't worry about it, everything's going to work out in the end, there is actually nothing comforting about that. It sounds good, but it's, it just... It's, it's vapor. It's nothing. It's, it's no promise. It's, it's not even really a hope. It's more like a, a, a blanket, uh, like, a, like a, chill, a child having a, a favorite blanket that they hold on to. And that's kind of what you're like if you go through this world saying, don't worry. But if the Christian worldview is so much more than that. It's don't worry, not because it would be nice if things worked out, but it's because I know things are going to work out based on the character of God and all of the testimony I have recorded in scripture, all of what he's already done in his good providence in my life, and thus I entrust my future and everything associated with it to him because he is real. The Christian worldview says we don't worry because we have a heavenly father. And as Christians, we, we need to hold onto that treasure and remind us of ourselves daily. We, we need to remind us of that on a regular basis. Why? Because we are so prone to be like the world and look at our circumstances around us and say, well, we must conclude that this is a very bad situation. Or we start looking at the world, how the world looks at the world, and then we are going to behave no different than the world, where we jockey for power and political gain and, and all the rest, thinking that's our solution. So how do, you, how do you do that on a regular basis? Well, God tells us that we should be immersed in his word and his teaching, that we should have ourselves surrounded by Christian community because in those two things, we actually have regular reminders of God's character, of his faithfulness, and of the Christian worldview that helps us to be able to pull ourselves out of our circumstances on a week-by-week -week basis and say, 
I have a heavenly father, I can submit that to him. Or I have a God in heaven, I can actually charge forward and be faithful to the kingdom, and I don't have to worry about where my next paycheck is coming from, so long as I am faithful to God. And God will take care of the rest. We, we have our source of hope then in God's character, not in our surrounding circumstances. But that view of, of, Christian, uh, of Christian, let's say, hakuna matata, not worrying, not being anxious, also commands us to use our resources in a way that stewards our resources wisely. I remember I was careful to say that the rich fool doesn't actually go wrong until he makes a false conclusion, namely, I don't have to work anymore because it's all mine. But everything else he does is actually quite wise. He builds storehouses, he, he, he has a yield, and he thinks, what should I do with this yield which will make it last as long as it can? Those are all good, shrewd questions. In Christianity, this, this would be the idea of investing in the world and building wealth and accumulating wealth in a way that is wise and God-honoring and God-glorifying. Let's say starting a small business, providing wealth for people around you, and then amassing wealth over time. That is, that is a good Christian view of, of resources. How do you build wealth into the world? And God doesn't say that being wealthy is sinful. He says having a heart posture around wealth that is sinful will cause your wealth to be nothing but covetousness. The, the world's view of wealth basically sees all wealth as the same. So there's no difference between the small business owner who works for their wealth over the course of 40 years and the person who gambles and wins the lotto that night. Well, the Christian view of wealth actually says if you're wealthy because of how you've invested in the world, you're going to actually cause other people to be benefactors of your wealth as a result of that. You're going to have employees, which you have. You're going to put food on the table for your family. You're going to bless a community by how you work. Whereas in gambling, as the, as the world uh, system has it, you become wealthy yourself. No one actually derives benefit from that wealth unless you overtly give money to them. In the world's view, wealth is nothing but like a dollar amount. But in the Christian view, wealth is not only a dollar amount, but also kind of a heart posture towards resources in general. And let's say the last conclusion we might, we might want to walk away with in this text is that time frame, specifically our time frame for how we live in this world, has to be informed by scripture and not by circumstance. So when you go to a funeral and you look at what happens there and you conclude this life is all that there is, you're falling short of the biblical time frame that it poses for us. If you live with only the grave as your, let's say, final chapter, you're going to live in this world in a way that concludes like the rich fool does. I should amass as much wealth for myself as I can. I should hold on to it tightly. And then when I'm gone, when I'm dead, it doesn't actually matter. I was as wealthy as I could have been in this life. But the Christian worldview says we have to live with actually an eternal time frame in mind which tells us that not only should we have wealth, but we should also give it generously because our Heavenly Father pays attention to that kind of stuff and will richly reward those who live in this life in a way that reflects His generosity. And Christians then, let's say, have an ultimate view of delayed gratification, which is more wise than the world's because it actually has an accurate timeline of creation and the cosmos. So what then can we say? Rather than Jesus teaching something shallow about anxiety, don't worry, and, and just that's that. Uh, Jesus is, is more wise than Timon and Pumbaa. He's more wise than uh, Ernie and Bernie. He lives in this world and commands his disciples to live in this world in a way that reflects the reality that God is on the throne, that God is sovereign, and that God loves his people in a way 
that means his people don't have to worry about this, that, or the other thing. And if you doubt that, well, you have the whole Old Testament to read through before you can really call that into question. Because God has not only provided one example of his providence, he's provided countless examples of his providence, and he hasn't even stopped testifying even till today, from the beginning of creation till now, he has constantly testified to his providence for his people. For example, the church still exists. Despite all the persecution, all the language barriers, all the other things associated with the church, all the sin, this church still exists because in God's providence, he wills it to do so. Consider the fact that ravens are still around. In God's providence, he's not yet stopped testifying about his love for creation and the fact that you could go outside tomorrow and you could see birds flying around and you could observe the same lesson that Jesus observes here, that they don't worry about their future and yet they're still around as a constant testimony to us not to worry. And you could also go just outside and you could look at the grass on the ground and you could conclude God who keeps grass going from year to year by his providence and rainfall and sunshine and all the rest, he is certainly more than capable of taking care of you because he can take care of the grass. And so we live in this world with all of those lessons in mind and all of God's testimony washing over us day after day to call us to obedience and to faith and really to worship of all that he is. So with that, let's now transition into further worship in the taking of communion and the singing of songs. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. But Lord, we thank you even more than that for the, the truth that it bears about the world around us. Your word carries a vibrant kind of worldview in it where it calls out our short-sightedness it calls out our sinful tendencies to worry and to be anxious. And it exhorts our hearts and our minds and our eyes to look to heaven and to look to eternity so that we might live in light of those realities. Lord, we confess that we often fall short of that living. We often live in this world as though there is no one on the throne. There is no one looking out for his people. There is no God up there. And Lord, we confess that as the sin that it is, and we ask for your grace and for faith and for the renewal of our hearts and our minds that we might live in this world with a real look at it, a look that acknowledges a cosmic God who loves his people, and that we might live our daily lives, our work and our relationship and our stewardship of our resources and our time and our energy and our efforts in a way that reflects the Christian worldview that we would be good stewards and faithful disciples in all that you have charged us with. We submit these things to you, Lord, and we ask that you be gracious to us. Pray this in your name. Amen.